Isaiah's theme is the salvation of the Lord. Ezekiel's subject is the glory of the Lord. Daniel foresees the kingdom of the Lord, while the prophet of Jeremiah, he declares the judgment of the Lord. Now, if you wanted to wake up a slumbering, sleepy people out of their lethargy with a series of blistering judgments, what kind of man would you send? Personally, I'd look for a hard-boiled, crusty old guy, somebody with a military background, maybe a former Navy SEAL, someone who wouldn't flinch, who wouldn't back down, a man with ice water in his veins. But that's not the kind of man that God chose. God took no delight in judging his people. It broke his heart. And thus God chose a tender-hearted, sensitive, loving man. Yes, Jeremiah stood boldly and pronounced God's judgment, but never without a tear in his eye. It's been said, touch the book of Jeremiah at any point, and it'll weep. It's a stern message from a yearning heart. Chapter 6 is now called a chapter of alarms. And it's like a shrill siren warning the nation of a coming invasion. Verse 1. O you, children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Now at the time of Solomon's son Rehoboam, the ten northern Hebrew nations, or tribes, they followed after the subtle idolatry of Jeroboam. And they became the northern kingdom of Israel. They split away from the south. The two southernmost tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they stayed faithful to Yahweh. They became the kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah was actually a Benjaminite from Anathoth. And here he is concerned about the welfare of his fellow Benjaminites who had sought refuge in the city of Jerusalem. He says, Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a signal fire in Bet Hakarim. For disaster appears out of the north in great destruction. Tekoa and the house of Hakarim were cities south of Jerusalem. Their mention here shows the extent of the coming calamity. This disaster from the north is going to overflow Jerusalem and even flow southward. And this disaster, this army from the north, was the Babylonian army, the superpower of its day. You see, by late May, early June, 605 B.C., the Babylonians and its general, King Nebuchadnezzar, had taken control of the eastern rim of the Fertile Crescent. Egyptian troops under the command of Pharaoh Necho had marched northward to the border between Turkey and Syria. It was their desire to hold off the western advancement of the Babylonians. The Egyptians camped at the city of Carchemish. And it was there a decisive battle in world history took place. In a surprise attack, the Babylonians, they routed the Egyptians. Pharaoh Necho then tucked tail and he retreated back across the Nile, leaving nobody to stop the advancing Babylonians. The Babylonian blitzkrieg that followed poured down from the north, toppling kingdom after kingdom. It took just a few months before Nebuchadnezzar had invaded the land of God's people, Judah, and had laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. 
it would be the first of three invasions. And Jeremiah is now sounding the alarm. God's judgment has been set. The die has been cast. Jerusalem will fall. The Benjaminites who had taken refuge in the city, who were trusting in its walls, thinking they would prevail. Jeremiah tells them they won't. Babylon will overrun Jerusalem as far as Tekoa and Beth Hakarim. The enemy will sweep over the land. The prophet Jeremiah was faithful to sound the alarm, but as we'll discover, nobody was listening. He continues in verse 2. I have likened the daughter of Zion, and of course Zion was another name for Jerusalem, to a lovely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Woe to us. For the day goes away. For the shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise and let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. In other words, time is running out. The sun is about to set on Jerusalem. The Babylonians were plotting their invasion, licking their chops at that very moment. For thus has the Lord of hosts said, Cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. And notice who's saying this. Who's giving his permission for Jerusalem to come under siege? Well, it's the Lord. Yahweh is using the Babylonians to come against his own people. God is using the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment. He says, as a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continually are grief and wounds. And here's how God saw his people. They were a fountain bubbling up with wickedness. They were spewing rebellion. Jerusalem was like Yellowstone Park's famous geyser. It's cone geyser, Old Faithful. Did you know Old Faithful spews steam every 63 minutes thereabouts? Old Faithful's one of nature's most dependable phenomena. But sadly, God's people were just as predictable. They were a steady stream of evil that caused God great grief. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel, as a gate gatherer, great gatherer, Put your hand back into the branches. A harvester of grapes would pick the vine more than once. You know, he put his hand back into the branches to glean out more fruit. And thus, Judah will be invaded more than once. Before her judgment is complete, Babylon will invade the nation of Judah three times. In 605 B.C., then again in 597, and then the final invasion was in 586 B.C. Verse 10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. And here was the problem facing Jeremiah. He was speaking. He was warning. But the people weren't listening. They had grown a flap over their ear. 
They didn't want to hear what God had to say. They'd rather bury their heads in the sand and imagine a false security. And this is our problem at times, is it not? The word of the Lord is a reproach. We like to turn a deaf ear to the things God would say to us. When we do, we do so to our own peril. You know, it's interesting. The word of the Lord is a reproach, he says. Politicians, they take the oath of office with their hand where? With their hand on the Bible. They quote it to serve their own interests. But do they obey it? Did they take it seriously and binding? <laughs> no way. It's a reproach to them. It's a restraint they don't think they need. We've rejected God's wisdom and we've trusted in our own. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. Well, wow, what it must have taken for a sensitive, tender-hearted man like Jeremiah to get full of the fury of the Lord. I would imagine he had great patience. He had a high threshold, you know, for anger. And yet here he says, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out in the children on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken from the wife, the aged with him, who is full of days. And their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. The coming judgment that Jeremiah is predicting will disrupt families. Kids will be taken from their parents. Wives will be separated from their husbands. Lands and homes will be lost. He says, because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. He's saying, realize there are no innocent casualties of God's judgment. For everyone is guilty. Everyone has sinned. Verse 14. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly. Saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now here's God's beef with the priests. The clergy of the day. They had healed the hurt of his people slightly. In other words, their treatment was superficial. They suffered, the people of Judah suffered a serious malady. But what were they given? Little more than a placebo. Imagine a doctor sticking a Band-Aid on a cancerous tumor and prescribing him a few aspirin and promising the patient that everything would be okay. That's malpractice. Yet that's what the priests were doing with God's people. They were telling them that everything will be okay. They were telling them only what they wanted to hear. They were saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And I'm afraid this wasn't the last time that the clergy have been guilty of such a crime. Today, pastors teach an easy believism, a cheap grace, you could call it, they give folks the impression that they can shed a tear and ask for a salvation without showing any real repentance from their heart, without any desire to turn from their sin and live under the authority of Jesus. Dealing with sin is no longer the issue in much preaching that's being given today. It's been replaced with boosting one's self-esteem, 
and thinking positive thoughts. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a tumor. You know, it's been said of today's gospel, if it were a medicine, it would be too weak to heal, and if it were a poison, it would be too weak to harm. It's been watered down. In other words, we've healed the hurt of God's people slightly rather than doing the radical surgery that's needed. Think of it this way. You don't cut out man's sin nature endoscopically. You know, you don't run something down his throat, you know, and snip, snip. And No, it requires more than non-invasive surgery. It still takes Jesus doing an open heart. He still wants to do open heart surgery on us. That's the kind of radical work it takes for him to cut out that old nature and plant within us a new nature. He wants to do open heart surgery on you and me. Verse 15, were, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. <laughs> You know, it's been said of all God's creation, only mankind can blush. Only man was made with the ability to blush. That's because we were created with moral and ethical sensibilities. We know when things are not right. When we've compromised and have been taken advantage of. Or when we lose our dignity. Or when we do something to shame us or others. Or when what should be private gets exposed. That's when we blush. We have a visceral reaction to our spiritual state. And yet it's possible to sear or desensitize a conscience so that a person forgets how to blush. This is what had happened to God's people Judah. They had forgotten how to blush. They had become so used to sin, so accustomed to their perversion, that they were no longer ashamed by it. And this is what's happened to America, has it not? This is what's happened to American morality over the last six decades. What would have caused your grandmother to blush no longer raises an eyebrow. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punished them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Where is this rest to be found? It's by asking for the old paths. If you want rest, if you want peace for your soul, return to the old paths. The answer is not a new morality or a new philosophy. It's a return to the former standards. Realize past generations were exposed to the same temptations that we are, and yet they chose the good way. Always remember, truth never needs updating. It's not a new way, an updated morality that we need, but a new resolve to walk again in the old paths. And yet sadly, notice the answer the Jews in Jeremiah's day, they give to him, they say, but they said, we will not walk in it. They refused. They were determined. to pursue their own thoughts, their own wisdom. You know, the Jews were determined to break with the old paths even 
if the old paths were right. I heard it said one time, never remove a fence until you know why it was put up in the first place. It's true. The Jews in Jeremiah's day didn't care. They were pulling up fence posts right and left. They were taking away the old ways and the old paths and the moral standards that had served them well for century after century. As we're doing today. Verse 17. Also, I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear, you nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth. Behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifice is sweet to me. You see, we'll see later that the Jews thought that they were immune from God's judgment because of the sacrifices they offered to him. But sacrifice alone is a hollow ritual. God says, the sweet cane I smell, the spices from Sheba, they bring me no pleasure. Without obedience, without devotion, sacrifice is a hollow ritual. God God wants more than our sacrifice. He wants our obedience and our love and our allegiance. And therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people. And the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them. The neighbor and his friend shall perish. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people comes from the north country, and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. And here he begins to describe the Babylonian army. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses As men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion, we have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as a woman in labor. The Babylonians had a fierce reputation. History tells us that they impaled their conquered foes. They skewered them. They skinned them alive. They even plucked out their eyes. They'll do this later to King Zedekiah. Remember Daniel's friends? They faced a fiery furnace. Another example of Babylonian torture and execution. Jeremiah is saying, he's telling God's people that this army from the north, they play rough. Judah needs to take heed. Verse 25. Do not go out into the field, nor walk by the way. In other words, it's not safe to be beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Take a walk outside the walls at your own risk. Because of the sword of the enemy, fear is on every side. Danger surrounds. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation for the plunderer will suddenly come upon us. Terrible days await God's people. God says to Jeremiah, I have set you... As an assayer. An assayer was someone who tested the purity of molten metal. He says, In a fortress among my people, that you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels. 
walking as slanderers. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. Here Jeremiah refers to the refining process. The metal was heated to high temperatures, extreme temperatures. This caused the impurities to rise to the surface. They were skimmed off, and thus the metal was pure after it had been refined or tested. And you know, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, I'll bet you're acquainted with this process. For God does this in us, doesn't he? He puts us through the fiery trial from time to time. It burns out our impurities, our hypocrisies. As a result, we end up pure. But this normally reliable process wasn't working in Jeremiah's day. He says, the smelter refines in vain, and the wicked are not drawn off. It's not working. Even though God has turned up the heat, the rebellion of his people was so deeply entrenched, it wasn't skimmable. It wasn't rising to the top. Even the hottest trial was unable to separate God's people from their evil. Thus, people will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. And here was a sad outcome. Notice, what God can't purify, He ends up rejecting. Pay attention to that. What God can't purify, He throws out and He rejects. You know, we're told the same in the New Testament. In John chapter 15, verse 6, it was Jesus who said, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. In other words, you can't say you belong to God if you are resistant to the changes that he wants to work in your life. Remember, the person whom God can't purify, he rejects. Chapter 7, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house that is in the temple and proclaim there this word. And what follows, chapters 7 through 10, are known as the temple discourses. Jeremiah is now called by God to go to the gate of the temple. It's where the people are coming and going. And to utter the words that God gives him. This particular occasion was probably during the Passover, a time when all the Hebrews were required to come up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. During the Passover, the population of the city would swell. Thick crowds filled the temple. People were crawling all over the temple. And these messengers were probably Jeremiah's first public prophecies. In fact, they made him more than a few enemies. God's judgments against the temple were what put Jeremiah on the priest's most wanted list. The hostilities that these messages caused eventually resulted in the priests of Anathoth actually plotting Jeremiah's assassination. He wins no friends with these next several chapters. God tells Jeremiah to go to the temple gates and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who have entered in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Imagine going to the White House. 
or to the National Cathedral or to one of the venues, our national venues, standing there amongst the columns and uttering to the people as they walked in, amend your ways and your doings and I will cause you to dwell in this place. This is the kind of impact that Jeremiah's message had there in the halls of the temple. In other words, at this point, deliverance was not too late. If they had changed their ways, they could remain in the land. We'll discover later in the book that that door will close. He says in verse 4, Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. You see, the Jews were trusting in the temple, not the Lord of the temple. They thought that since the temple was the only God-appointed place to worship him, and since God wanted him to be worshipped, he would never allow harm to come to the temple. Jerusalem was immune to this judgment, or so they thought. Remember, one of the reforms instituted by King Josiah was to cut down the pagan altars surrounding Jerusalem and to re-centralize the worship of God in Jerusalem's temple. Josiah made wonderful and impressive renovations to the temple. He required everyone to worship there. But the people were so used to worshiping their idols, idols that they could manipulate and could control rather than God, they very quickly made an idol out of the temple. They viewed it as a good luck charm. It was God's temple. He would never allow damage to his temple. This, this gave them a false sense of security. They assumed that Israel in the north was judged since they didn't have the temple. But in the south, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. You know, it's amazing how quickly God's people will replace God with the things of God. They exalt a symbol over the substance. You remember the Hebrews did this with the brass serpent. When God judged the people in the wilderness, God called Moses to make a brass serpent, to raise it up. It became God's instrument of healing. But in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, we learned that much later, the Jews had actually turned it into an idol, and they were worshiping it. And people have done the same with other things that have had meaning in the past, things of God that they've turned into idols. People do this with Calvary's cross. I mean, rather than trust the man who died on that cross, you know people. They, they'll take their crucifix and they'll kiss it and they'll rub it and they'll wear it as a good luck charm. They've turned a symbol into an idol. They put the things of God above God himself. This is what they had done to the temple. Notice verse 5. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment, not just slightly, but thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder? Commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house 
which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. I mean, God is asking, do you think I only see what you're doing when you're standing in my house? He cares about what they have been doing outside the temple during the rest of the week. I mean, you can't rebel against God in every corner of your life and then enter God's house on Sunday and think everything's going to be okay. That's like the hypocrite who goes out and he raises hell six days a week and then he comes to church on Sunday morning and thinks his attendance is going to make up for all of his rebellion. That's naive. That's foolish. It's not true. The Jews were saying that since they were God's people and since they worshipped at His temple, that they could do as they liked. Steal, commit adultery, lie, serve other gods, and they would be immune from God's judgment just because they worshipped at the temple. I mean, their logic was ludicrous. You think God chose and delivered you so that you can do all these abominations, Jeremiah asks. God's favor should have provoked repentance and allegiance, not this kind of cavalier nonchalance. It sounds like the Christian today who says, oh, I'm saved, so now it doesn't really matter what I do. Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God saves us so we won't sin. Not so we can keep at it. If you truly belong to God, you'll want to please Him. Remember in Luke chapter 19, verse 46, when Jesus drove the money changers from the temple, He quoted verse 11 here in Jeremiah, and He coupled it with Isaiah 56, verse 7. There He said, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus drew on this passage that we've just read. It's interesting that Jesus, like Jeremiah, weeped over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus also prophesied Jerusalem's invasion. Even the destruction of the temple that were accomplished in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. In fact, numerous similarities existed between Jesus and Jeremiah. It's interesting. Both ministered just prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Both were priest and prophet. Both were accused of treason. Both never married. Both Jesus and Jeremiah addressed the corrupt temple practices. Both spoke of the destruction of the temple. Both wept over Jerusalem's sin. Both loved Israel deeply. Both were forsaken by relatives and friends. Both were rejected in their own hometown. Jesus in Nazareth, Jeremiah in Anathoth. Both were tried and persecuted and imprisoned. Both Jesus and Jeremiah were condemned by the priests of their day and both died at the hands of their own people. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi for their short retreat. He asked them, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And you remember the disciples, they were very aware of the public opinion. I mean, their answer sounded like the latest poll results. They responded, well, some say John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. Isn't it interesting? 
that there must have been a strong resemblance between Jesus and Jeremiah. For some had mistaken Jesus for Jeremiah. You see, Jesus and Jeremiah had the rare combination of both toughness and tenderness. They were strong enough to confront the establishment of their day and yet sensitive enough to God and to people to shed a tear. Many of the Jewish rabbis have tried to ascribe Isaiah 53, the prophecy of Yahweh's suffering servant, to Jeremiah. They've called Jeremiah the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Of course, for many reasons, we reject this notion. Isaiah 53 can only speak of Jesus. But the ministries of both men were similar in many ways. It's little wonder that folks saw Jeremiah in Jesus. Notice verse 12. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Now he's going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. People don't think he can. They don't think he will. But he's done it before. And he takes them to Shiloh as a lesson. I've been to Shiloh, by the way. One year when we went to Israel, we loaded up in an armored bus. and We went up the, through the West Bank and went all the way up to Shiloh. It was a wonderful experience. I'll never forget, I dropped my Bible in the mud. I still got uh, mud on the pages. And I always remember Shiloh when I look at, the, look at my Bible. Today, it's in the West Bank. It's in disputed territory. It's 18 miles north of Jerusalem. But it was an important biblical site for the tabernacle, not the temple, but its predecessor, the tabernacle, the tent where they worshiped, was in Shiloh for 350 years. That's almost as long as the temple stood in Jerusalem. You remember in the days of the judges, Shiloh was to Israel what Jerusalem became after the temple was built. People pilgrim, pilgrimaged to Shiloh. You remember Hannah and Penina went up with their husband, Elkanah, to Shiloh once a year to worship. People came to Shiloh to worship at the tabernacle. And yet they made the same mistake in Shiloh that they would later make in Jerusalem. The Spirit of God in the tabernacle rested over the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a symbol of God's presence. And yet, once again, the Hebrew people trusted in the symbol more than the substance, more than God's Spirit. So when Israel went out to battle with the Philistines, guess what they did? They thought they would have more favor by sending the Ark out to lead the charge. It was their good luck charm. They trusted in the ark, the things of God, rather than in God himself. And yet instead of making them invincible, the ark was captured by the Philistines. What a terrible thing. What a blasphemous thing. What a, an atrocity. And when Eli, the high priest, heard the news, he was so shocked that the ark was captured by the Philistines that he fell off his stool and he broke his neck and he died instantly right then and there. In 1050 B.C., Shiloh was destroyed and Israel was defeated. And here's Jeremiah's point. The ark didn't protect Shiloh from God's judgment and neither will it protect the temple in Jerusalem from God's judgment. 
Holy things don't make a holy people. Holiness comes from a humble, broken heart. And then verse 13 tells us, And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. God said, I was so eager to get this message to you. Every morning, the first thing I did was to speak to you. I rose early to say these things to you, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. And Ephraim was a nickname for the northern kingdom of Israel. I'll judge you the same way that I've judged Israel, the northern kingdom. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Notice what God says to Jeremiah. He's saying, Jeremiah, there's no sense to pray for this people's deliverance until they repent. Don't, don't try to intercede for these people, Jeremiah. I won't listen. Not until they repent. You know, if you refuse to come to Christ, do you realize you're on your own? I mean, there's consequences for that. If you refuse and reject Jesus and turn a deaf ear to God, there's consequences. You could have his help. You could have his spirit on board in your life. But if you reject Jesus, there's consequences. God won't hear you. You're on your own. There's no sense praying to God for a new job or a car or the rent until you're a Christian, until you give your life to Jesus. Then, and only then, does God obligate himself to meet your needs, but not before. Could God answer your prayer? Might he bless your life? Certainly. God can do anything he wants, but is he obligated? Absolutely not. Not until you give your life to Jesus. Until then, you're on your own. He says, do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire. And the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. This was appalling to God. Imagine this. You think God won't judge Jerusalem? Look at what's going on in her streets. Idolatry has become a family affair. Children are gathering wood, and dads are making the fire, and moms are making the sacrificial cakes that they're offering now to idols, to the queen of heaven. All Jerusalem is worshiping idols. You think God won't judge Jerusalem? You're wrong. Apparently, the queen of heaven was a favorite idol among the citizens of Jerusalem at the time. The queen of heaven, she was Astaroth to the Canaanites. She was Venus to the Romans. She was Aphrodite to the Greeks. Diana to the Ephesians. Isis to the Egyptians. Ishtar to the Babylonians. The queen of heaven cult was a fixture in the paganism of the ancient world. In fact, traces of her cult have trickled down to today. Did you know that Roman Catholicism assigns to Mary the title Queen of Heaven? They exalt her far beyond what God intended. Mary was a good girl, not a queen. 
Not a God. She has no clout with God. She's especially not the queen of heaven, as if her influence extends to the heights of heaven. That's idolatry still today. Verse 19. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. God's judgment will be severe. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. In other words, if you're offering your sacrifices hypocritically, well, then just eat them yourself. If they're not heartfelt, they're not going to please God. Just make yourself a good barbecue out in the backyard. If it's not coming from your heart, don't bring it to the temple. Don't make mockery of God. He says, For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. The means by which God saved Israel from Egypt was the Passover which did involve a sacrifice. But that sacrifice was a statement of obedience and trust in God. And without that, without that obedience and trust, the sacrifice would have been meaningless. It was their faith that mattered to God. God never took pleasure in barbecue aroma. Sacrifice and burnt offering were always intended to be expressions of the heart, of trust and of commitment to God. It's interesting, each Sabbath in the Jewish synagogue, there's a reading from the Torah, the law of Moses. And then there is a corresponding passage from the Psalms or the prophets. And whenever Leviticus chapter 6 through 8 is read, where God lays out all of the laws concerning the burnt offerings, what gets accompanied with that passage is this passage from Jeremiah. That God didn't care about the sacrifices. That, that's not what he was saying to them. That what he really wanted from them was a heart of obedience and a heart of trust and faith and loyalty to him. It keeps the law of the sacrifices in the proper context of obedience and faith in God. Well, that was how Israel started their journey. They were to obey God's voice. They were to be his people. They were to walk in his ways, verse 24. And yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. So you shall say to them, this is a nation 
that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God nor receive correction, truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. When God saves you, he does so so that you can go forward, so that you can grow in your relationship with him. Tragically, when God saved Israel, they went backwards. They never matured. They never grew. And God sent prophets to them to warn them. You remember in Luke chapter 20, Jesus tells the parable of a man who owned a vineyard. And he rented it out to vine dressers. And when it came time to collect the rent, the owner sent out his servants. But the people who were renting the vineyard, they beat up the servants. And they sent them back empty-handed. And thus the owner thought, surely they'll honor and respect my son. So he sent his son. But he received worse treatment. They murdered the owner's own heir, his son, hoping to take the vineyard for themselves. And Jesus went on to explain this story. That the vine dressers were the Hebrew nation. The servants were his prophets, God's prophets. And the son was himself, was Jesus. That meant that the prophet Jeremiah was one of the prophets that the vine dressers beat up, that they rejected. And we'll read later of the terrible persecution that Jeremiah suffered. Verse 29. Cut off your hair and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. In other words, be ashamed, repent, mourn over your sin. Shaving the head was a symbol of great grief. He's saying, show the symbols of repentance. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. The Jews had even set up idols in the temple. They couldn't have committed a greater blasphemy. Verse 31, and they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters into the, in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. I didn't even think something so despicable. The valley of Hinnom is east of the old city of Jerusalem. And if you've been to Israel with us, you've been there. We always drive through it several times in our journeys to and fro. Today, it's a beautiful park. It has an outdoor stage. It's a place for concerts. The Valley of Hinnom, a beautiful place. But during the days of Jeremiah, it wasn't the sweet sounds of music rising up from the valley into God's ears. That's not what he heard. Instead, it was the screams and cries of babies in distress. For this was the place where the Jews set up altars to Molech. The high places of Tophet was the site where the Jews offered child sacrifice to this Moabite god named Molech. Tophet means fireplace or incinerator. Molech had the head of an ox and the body of a human. He was made of brass with a hollowed out torso. His arms were outstretched. A fire was stoked in the belly of the belly of the idol. 
They would stoke the fire until the idol, until the metal became brazen and hot and molten and red and glowing. Children were then placed in the idol's arms while the priests of Molech would beat their drums to drown out the baby's screams. And there is little difference to what is happening in our country today. Since Roe v. Wade legalized abortion, 50 million babies have been sacrificed to the gods of pleasure and convenience in this country. Many of them have literally been burned by saline abortion. All the while, the pro-choice groups beat their drums and try to drown out the voices that would speak for the unborn. It's happening even in our midst. Verse 32. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will, be, when it will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet until there is no room the corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. And what an ominous warning this is. In the same place where the children were sacrificed to Molech, the citizens of Jerusalem will be judged. Their corpses will be piled high, given to the turkey vultures and to the wild beasts to be scavenged. There'll be no one to shoo them away. There'll be no more room for bodies to be buried. He says, Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. And in the wake of this Babylonian judgment, the city will be void of any joy and happiness and celebration. There'll be no weddings. Only funerals, Jeremiah's warning. A wake will be held for all Jerusalem. Now, the way the text breaks out, we're going to cover the next three verses. I think it belongs to chapter 7. But chapter 8 in your Bible begins, At that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. And they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and which they have served and after which they have walked, which they have sought and which they have worshipped. They, they shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. How ironic. The king's the princes, the priests, the prophets, the citizens of Jerusalem all sold out their relationship with God and worshipped the altars of the sun and moon and stars. God had given, uh, God's people had given themselves over to astrology. But now, at this moment, their graves will be open and their bones will be spread out before the false gods they once served. How much will the sun and stars do for them then? Realize in Jewish culture, the tampering or the moving of a dead man's bones is, worth, is worth, worse than death itself. Every man was entitled to a decent, undisturbed burial and to move their bones. That was a desecration. In fact, this is still the case. 
In 2010, a hospital in southern Israel wanted to expand their emergency room to help heal people. But in doing so, they needed to move some bones from a graveyard. And Orthodox Jews from Jerusalem, they all went down and started a protest. Several were arrested. For even today, Jews take desecrating a grave seriously. But when the Babylonians conquer, the graves of the priests and the prophets and the kings and the princes will be desecrated. Their bones will be laid out before those objects that they had worshipped, the sun and stars, but they'll do nothing for them. Verse 3. Then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family who remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. God's judgment of his people will be so long and severe. Those who survive Jerusalem's destruction will prefer death over life. And this has been the case throughout Jewish history. You know, in 70 AD, the Romans flattened Jerusalem. Once again, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was burned to the ground. And Jews were scattered all around the world. And for the last 1900 years, the Jews have lived in dispersion. Today it's called the Diaspora. And death has followed the Jews everywhere they've lived, from Arab nations to Spain to Germany to Russia. Today the Arab League, as well as Iran, has pledged themselves to drive Israel into the sea. The Jews are still persecuted. And they will be until Jesus returns. And there we'll sort of end at verse 3 of chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 4. Uh, next time we gather together. And I thought what we'd do uh, with the last few minutes of our evening is uh, could we take a 